This is Dr. Michael Bricky with Ageless Lifestyles Radio, cutting-edge thinking for being youthful at every age. On each program, I interview experts on what it takes to live longer, healthier, and happier. Many have asked, why can't I lose weight? And we all know people who eat like a bird and say they can't lose weight. Today's show, Nutrition, Brains, Appetite, and Weight Loss, addresses these frustrating issues uh, and weight loss. Our guest is Dr. Larry McCleary, author of Feed Your Brain, Lose Your Belly. Dr. McCleary, welcome. Mike, it's very nice of you to have me on your program, and I very much look forward to the discussion we'll be having. Well, I'm sure no one's interested in losing weight, so I don't know if we can get much of an audience. The basic premise of what you write about is that weight gain is about managing your body storing weight and facilitating burning off the the fat that is stored, which sounds very simple, but the details are very complicated. Walk us through how we store fat in our body. Well, when we gain weight, we tend not to worry if we gain muscle weight, so we're primarily concerned about gaining fat weight, and the body has about a billion, which is about a thousand million fat cells. And when fat cells enlarge, they enlarge because fat builds up in them. So once that's understood, the approach to understanding the balance of fat in the body really boils down to understanding what happens to an individual fat cell. And if we are in a mode or a state in the body where fat's being excessively stored in fat cells, then over time the fat cell will enlarge, and if that happens throughout the body, which it will, we will gain weight. So my approach has really been to look at what happens in an individual fat cell and then discuss that in the context of the whole body. And my perspective really is that getting fat is a fat storage disease. And so I focused on a fairly simple approach that is pretty understandable that allows us to figure out what to do to decrease fat storage and increase fat burning, which is really, after all, if you want to lose weight, you want to be able to tap into the fat cells and fat stores throughout your body and use those as energy and then you'll lose fat weight, be healthier and be thinner as well. So the focus I have is on what really controls fat storage in the body and that really is the focus of the book that I've just written and the diet that I recommend really is a diet that controls insulin levels and We've all heard about the hormone insulin because that is what diabetics inject to control their blood sugar levels. But the hormone insulin wears a number of hats, and one of the hats it wears is to allow the body to store fat. And if that's the case, and insulin is really the most powerful fat storage hormone in the body, if we eat a diet that keeps insulin levels high, then what happens is fat gets packed into fat cells, and when we need to tap into the fat cells, insulin prevents that, and so instead of 
burning fat, we go back to the refrigerator. So that really is, in a nutshell, fat storage, weight gain, and how you can reverse the process. And a dramatic example of that is type 1 diabetes or childhood diabetes, where they're not producing insulin, and one of the diagnostic signals for that is weight loss. That's absolutely correct. There are pediatric doctors or pediatricians who take care of children, but a subspecialty branch is pediatric endocrinology, and those are hormone doctors and kids, and they specialize in taking care of children with type 1 diabetes, and that's a condition where, for one reason or another, the body loses the ability to manufacture the hormone insulin. And one of the signature traits in those children as they're developing the disorder, and which is also a, a sign that doctors look for, is rapid weight loss. And that really occurs because if you do not have the hormone insulin, fat comes out of fat cells, is burned, and you lose weight. So it's hard to gain weight when you have no insulin in your body. And there is, I mean, if you're a football fanatic, there was a quarterback for the Denver Broncos who now plays for the Chicago Bears who, even though he was in his mid-20s when he was playing for Denver, he developed a pediatric disease. He developed type 1 diabetes and he lost about 15% of his body mass even though he was eating thousands and thousands of calories a day doing weight training which usually packs on muscle mass and taking all kinds of nutritional supplements. And why was that? He had the hormonal signal that was responsible for storing energy and storing fat was absent in his body. So his body could not store all of the calories he was consuming, and he lost weight even though he was doing everything he could to gain weight, which is what you have to do if you're a professional football player. Do fats and proteins have any influence on insulin levels? The faster you dump sugar into the bloodstream, the more insulin that will release. Now, if you eat protein, protein in and of itself, without any carbohydrate, has a slight impact on insulin levels. But if you eat protein in conjunction with rapidly digested carbohydrates, protein actually magnifies that effect. So I think if if you're going to combine protein and carbohydrate, you want the benefits of the protein, but you don't want to be eating high amounts of rapidly digested and rapidly absorbed carbohydrates at the same time. So that hamburger with the white bread bun <laughs> is the formula you're describing. Well, that's exactly correct. And you know, it's funny because when I first stumbled onto this and probably 15 or 18 years ago, I think we'd all been told to banish fat from our plate. And I said, after talking with someone who was a low-carb dieter, I said, let me make this simple for my pea brain. I said, suppose you've got a hamburger and a hamburger bun on your plate. I've been told not to eat the hamburger for years and years, and what you're telling me is to eat the hamburger and not the bun. And that's when my life changed. So 
currently you're literally uh, eating the hamburger and not the bun. Well, I think so. It's gotten more sophisticated than that, but I think it just shows, in my opinion, the dietary guidelines for Americans, which have been approved as of January 2011, have recommended that we restrict fat, restrict saturated fat, and eat more carbohydrates. And while every individual is different, if you eat carbohydrates, your blood sugar goes up and your insulin rises. And I think that that is not good if you want to lead a thin lifestyle or if you want to avoid chronic diseases. So that is what's been the guiding force in my life from a nutritional perspective. And the the fat that we eat also tends to curb our appetite. That's my impression. I think that, uh, and you had asked that question earlier and I had not responded to it, so I'm glad you came back to it. There are diets out there based upon the glycemic index Mm -hmm. and the glycemic load. And what that means is when the body consumes a certain amount of carbohydrate, blood sugar level rises. And that's different for each food source. And since blood sugar really determines what your insulin level is, which is the fat storage signal, the premise behind these diets is if you restrict the uh, glycemic index of the foods you eat or of the carbohydrates you eat and the amount of those carbohydrates, you minimize the fat storage signal and that's how they recommend that you eat for a thin, healthy lifestyle. And if you look at the glycemic index tables, the foods on there are carbohydrates. There are no fats on the glycemic index tables because fats really have very minimal effect on the response of the body from an insulin perspective. So they have essentially what's called a glycemic index of zero. And all fats share this property. So when you're trying to decide what type of fats to include in the diet, they all have a glycemic index of zero. And so you have to make that decision based upon other functional attributes of the fats that you're consuming. So the key to not adding fat to your abdomen is going easy on the carbs. In my opinion, that's absolutely correct, especially the carbohydrates that are rapidly broken down that have a major impact upon glucose and subsequently insulin levels because, again, that maximizes the fat storage signal. So I think one half of the equation is to avoid the high glycemic index or rapidly digested carbohydrates as well as the the sugars such as fructose, which causes a, a dysregulation of the hormone insulin. So if you minimize those, I think you're about halfway there. The other side of the equation, because we all have to eat calories, is to look at what else you're eating. And I think we need a balanced, adequate protein throughout the day. And I also think that we need a basis in fats, both the essential fats and a number of non-essential fats, primarily what are referred to as monounsaturated fats. And by those, I mean the fats in olives, nuts, seeds, and avocados. 
I, I said to go easy on the carbs, particularly the high glycemic carbs. The Atkins diet went to the extreme of trying to have virtually no carbs, and I gather that's pretty destructive. Well, I think it depends upon your perspective, and I think that's an important question to discuss because we're all different, and by that I mean the biochemistry in our bodies is all different. So one person might be able to eat a certain amount of fat and a certain amount of carbohydrate and have a fixed insulin level. Another person might tolerate higher amounts of carbohydrates and still be able to maintain a fairly low insulin level. And an example of that would be a young, healthy teenage boy. But as that child grows into middle age and older, he will not be able to maintain low insulin levels on a high-carb, high-refined-carb diet. So what Robert Atkins, in my opinion, was suggesting was if the more you restrict carbohydrates, especially the refined process ones that are released into the bloodstream rapidly, you're able to lower insulin levels. Now, some people might need to restrict that number more than others. The question is, what happens if you say you want to go from a 60% carbohydrate content diet to 40%, 20%, 10%, or 5%, or even down to 2 or 3%? Some of the ketogenic diets, which are used for seizure control, are about 80 to 90% fat, and that doesn't leave much room for carbohydrates. And the question is, is restricting carbohydrates that severely bad for the body? And I think that question needs to be addressed, and that's really what you've asked. And the way I would answer that is to say, will a deficiency disease develop if you eat zero carbohydrates? And the answer to that question is no. And why is that? Because primarily because the body can break down protein and generate carbohydrate from it, generate glucose from it. Body can break down fat, and the backbone of fat is a glycerol molecule which can be turned into sugar. So the body has the ability, if we eat zero carbohydrates, to make abundant sugar, and so no deficiency disease will develop. Does that mean that we should totally avoid carbohydrates? And the answer, in my opinion, is that carbohydrates contain a number of healthy plant-based nutrients that enhance health, such as anti-inflammatories and free radical fighting compounds. So I think if you pick and choose the right carbohydrates and avoid the starches and the rapidly digested carbs, there are carbohydrates that are healthy for us, such as broccoli, kale, chard, Brussels sprouts, lettuce, salad greens, spinach, and things like that, asparagus, peppers, which usually the colorful vegetables, which provide a high nutrient density, meaning a lot of good, healthy nutrients without many calories or many carbohydrates. Some of what I've read is that, particularly in extreme Atkins diet, uh, some people end up metabolizing their muscle tissue and other tissue that they need. Yeah, that's exactly what I, I was alluding to. If you totally restrict carbohydrates, your body's going to need to generate glucose because the brain 
red blood cells and to a lesser degree uh, kidney cells need approximately 100 grams of glucose a day. And where does that come from? That comes from muscle tissue. And it can come from protein and muscle that you eat, or it can come from your skeletal muscles, which are the muscles you use to move joints, or from your heart muscle. So I think that you have to be a little bit careful that you don't break down too much tissue because that's a catabolic process and that's that's not in general healthy. I don't advocate a zero or two percent carbohydrate based diet. I think that it's different person to person, but 75 to 125, 150 grams of carbs precludes the body from breaking down its own tissues and also provides sources of plant-based nutrients, which are very healthy. We all know some really skinny people that can eat all day long and never gain a pound. What's going on with them? That's a good question. I think that there are some people who we wish we were in a way because they seem to be able to eat anything and not gain weight. And I think that uh, some people have a less efficient metabolism than others. And as an example, a non-human example, if you look at a furnace, there are certain furnaces that are very efficient, meaning they burn a fuel, they generate heat, and the heat, 90% of the heat can be used to heat your house. There are some furnaces that are less efficient. So what happens is maybe 50% of the energy and the heat that the furnace generates heats the house and the rest leaks away and and is really pretty much wasted. And so to keep the house at the same temperature, that furnace would have to be, be burning twice as much fuel. And I think that's the way the bodies work of some of these individuals who are extraordinarily thin, even though they appear to eat twice as many calories as another average human being. I think the other thing is that certain people tend to develop stickier fat cells. And by that I mean fat cells that hang on to fat and tend not to release it. It's just kind of the opposite of what happens in a juvenile onset diabetic. Mm -hmm. Their fat cells release fat and it's burned by the body. In people who have sticky fat cells, for whatever reason, their body hangs on to that, so it's very hard for them to lose weight. I understand that you have to eat some fat in order to get the stored fat in your body to burn that fat. Is that correct, and can you describe the process for burning the fat that we've already stored? If you eat no calories and no fat, what happens? The body will realize that it's sort of in a starvation mode, and it needs energy. So what will happen is that blood insulin levels fall. Insulin is the fat storage hormone. When insulin levels fall, fat comes out of fat cells and becomes the preferred fuel for the body to use. So you don't really need to eat fat to burn fat. And sometimes really to get into a fat-burning mode, uh, some people get there more easily by fasting for a day or two. And that really allows your blood insulin level to fall dramatically and for fat to come out of your fat cells and for you to start using that as your 
preferred fuel. And then after a couple of days, when your insulin levels are low and you're in a fat-burning mode, you start eating whatever diet is optimal for you. And that usually means eating a certain number of calories. And that's where if you're going to keep insulin levels low but eat, say, 2,000 calories, you're going to have to eat fat to make up the major proportion of those calories. And why is that important? It's important because, as we discussed, fat in the diet does not raise insulin levels, and you want to keep insulin levels low to keep burning fat. So that's where eating fat to burn fat comes about. Does fasting tend to reset metabolism at a lower rate? It depends upon what you mean by fasting. I think if you don't eat for a day or two, your metabolic rate will decline slightly. If you don't eat for six weeks, your metabolic rate will fall dramatically. So that's why I think it's important if you want to jumpstart weight loss, if you are going to fast, fast for a day, fast for two days, because you don't want your metabolic rate to slow. And what that means is the metabolic rate is how fast your body burns calories. And if you're if the rate at which your body burns calories is very low, you might not be able to lose weight even though you're eating 1,200 calories a day, which is really bordering on being a starvation diet. So you want to keep your metabolic rate high. So you do want to eat, you do want to be active, but you want to eat so that you keep insulin levels low. And and that's in a way where protein's important because we all need some protein. Protein is hard for the body to handle and digest, so it keeps your metabolic rate up. And it also enhances the production of lean tissue, meaning bone, heart, muscle, and, and organ tissues. They, they have a high content of protein, and that's, it's the activity in those organs that keeps your metabolic rate up. Do you give any different advice to the person who says, I eat like a bird and still gain weight or can't lose weight than somebody who just would like to lose five pounds? Uh, A person who over 10 years has gained five pounds, I think, is is a different metabolic individual than someone who, assuming it's true, gains weight even while eating like a bird. I would suggest that the person who gains weight while eating like a bird is making the wrong food choices in the calories they consume or they're fairly sensitive to the hormone insulin so they have a high fat storage signal and so what happens is if you store calories in fat and you don't burn them then your body senses that you're going into starvation mode your metabolic rate falls and that's how you can get into the eating like a bird and gaining weight mode. So I think that the advice for a person who has a donut and the donut just goes to his or her thighs is to alter food choices to lower insulin levels or to to do a day fast to get insulin levels lower and to decrease the fat storage signal. You said earlier that you certainly disagree with the government's advice on reducing fat. Another popular kind of consensus diet is a Mediterranean diet. Are there areas that you disagree with a Mediterranean diet, or is that pretty well fit with what you advocate? Well, I think that they have 
a number of healthy vegetables, meat, fish, and obviously a lot of olives. But I think bread, bread and bread products are to a degree more prominent in that type of diet than I would feel comfortable recommending. But I think that uh, the Mediterranean diet is, is certainly a, a big step in the right direction. And we also hear both from the Mediterranean diet and from the government, eat lots of fruits. And you're saying the very sweet fruits can have a very high glycemic index, so you need to go easy on the sweeter fruits. Well, let me try to frame that or put it into perspective. As I said, I think certain vegetables or a number of vegetables and some fruits uh, have a number of valuable plant nutrients, but especially fruits can can contain a lot of fruit sugar, which is fructose, one type of sugar, and a lot of glucose. Uh, and the glucose is stored in chains in the body. So those are simple sugars, and fruit contains moderate amounts of those. For example, if you eat watermelon, watermelon has one of the highest glycemic indices uh, on the food tables. Again, put it into perspective, if you calculate the amount of blood glucose, which is what's commonly called blood sugar, in the body, in the bloodstream at any one time, it's between 7 and 12 or 13 grams. Call call it on average 10 grams. And if you eat a third of a, a bowl of blueberries, that probably is three times the amount of sugar that's in your bloodstream at the time. And if you're someone who is a juvenile diabetic who eats some blueberries in that way, they have to significantly increase the amount of insulin they take to cover that rise in blood sugar. So I think you have to know about the fruits you're eating and how they affect your blood sugar level. And I think that a lot of phytonutrients and antioxidants and and other nutrients in fruits are very healthy but they can they can be gotten from vegetables that have more fiber and less sugar and another source which is kind of interesting and I'm not saying go on binges but dark chocolate it has very little carbohydrate a lot of fat and a lot of it is stearic acid which does not affect cholesterol levels but if you look at the ORAC content, and ORAC, O-R-A-C, is the oxygen radical absorptance capacity. It's a, it's a scale for uh, measuring quantitatively how many antioxidants are in a particular size of a various food. Cherries are about 800, and Brussels sprouts are uh, maybe 1,000 or in that range. Plums and prunes are up around four or five thousand, but dark chocolate is around fourteen or fifteen thousand. So a little bit of dark chocolate can provide a lot of uh, good nutrition and good antioxidants. So I mean, it's just another thing to think about. It's interesting. People think of fruit juices as very healthy and smoothies as very healthy, and yet often they're going to have very high glycemic indexes. Well, and that that's true. And uh, the other thing is that uh, fruit juices have very little fiber, and fiber is the glue that binds the sugar and makes it released much more slowly. 
if you look at lettuce, say if you eat 100 grams of carbohydrate in lettuce and 100 grams of carbohydrate in white bread and followed your blood sugar, you'd have a high spike in glucose after the white bread, but blood sugar levels would rise minimally over the next six or seven hours if you ate lettuce. So it's it's really how the food is the sugar is packaged and complexed in the foods, and that's why vegetables with fiber are much healthier than white bread, which usually doesn't have that much fiber. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Dr. Larry McCleary, who's a pediatric brain surgeon, acting chief of neurosurgery at the Denver Children's Hospital and also medical director of Shining Stars Foundation, which provides programs for children with cancer and other life-threatening diseases. His just-released book is Feed Your Brain, Lose Your Belly. And as the title suggests, it's written in a lay language, so it's easy to understand and apply. And you also have another book, Bald is Beautiful. Tell us a little about that. That is a book that's very close to my heart. I volunteer as the medical director for a nonprofit in Colorado called the Shining Stars Foundation, which puts on a year-round program for children with cancer and other life-threatening diseases. And one of our major events occurs uh, during the late winter, and we bring about 50 or 60 children from around the country to Aspen, Colorado for a week of skiing, snowboarding, and just having fun. And it's an event where uh, there are no parents there. It's just the children and the medical staff and some volunteers. And the reason we do it that way is so the kids really talk to each other rather than talking to their parents. They they communicate very effectively with each other, and they they realize, you know what, I'm not the only kid with cancer. I'm not the only kid who's lost my hair. And they learn how to strategize. They develop an expanded social network. And, and they, they really realize that life can be fun again. And so that's the purpose for that event. And one year while we were there, I asked a number of the kids, you know, we can't bring everyone with cancer to Aspen for a week. What else can we do? And without hesitation, they said, you know what, we are the experts in Hmm. cancer. We're not the experts in treating cancer, but we are the experts in living with cancer. So talk to us, interview us, and then turn what we say into a book and give that out to kids right when they're diagnosed. So what we did based upon that suggestion is to interview a large number of kids with cancer and their brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, and parents transcribed the interviews and called the interviews for pearls of wisdom and then built a number of chapters around those topics. And we had so much information, we wrote a book for adults and one for kids. And the books are called Bald is Beautiful, The Shining Stars Foundation Guide to Living with Childhood Cancer. And it was just a very heartwarming experience for me to be involved in that project because if you haven't interacted with kids recently and you ask them a question, you better be ready for the answer in an unfettered fashion because they're going to tell you what they're thinking. And and as an example, we were told and cancer is uh, is kind of like carrying around a black cloud. It's uh, 
got a potential death sentence and it's not fun to get chemotherapy, to have surgery, to get radiation, to have blood draws all the time and to feel nauseated and sick. But they, a number of the kids, maybe most of them said, you know what? There is a good side to having cancer and here are some examples. And as one example, they said, you know what? Life doesn't go on forever. I never knew that before. I'm nine. And I thought I'd live forever. Now I know I'm not going to live forever, so I better make the most of every day and every interaction, have fun, and create sunshine in the lives of other people. So that's what that book project was all about. So thank you for asking. Oh, that's a fabulous project, and I love the cover of the children's book. It has about a dozen bald children on it. uh, it, Every year in Aspen, we take a group photo of some of the kids whose heads are really as bald as a cue ball, and it really is a badge of honor to be in that photograph. And what's interesting is uh, a number of kids arrive in Aspen wearing wigs, and after the first day, they're Uh gone. It was funny because this past year, there was a gal who was about 16 from Phoenix, and she was bald and had a gorgeous black wig. And when I first saw it, I thought, wow, that really is her hair. It was very natural looking. And we team up every child with cancer with what we call an Aspen buddy who's really an adult to make uh, separation from parents and being in a new, unfamiliar surrounding easier and the Aspen buddy happened to be about a 25 year old guy and she was 16 or 17 and he said you know what Crystal if you take your wig off and don't wear it all week at banquet night I will wear and this was a guy I will wear the dress of your choosing and she did it and he did it and she chose the dress and it was about the ugliest dress I've ever seen in my life and he had about <laughs> the hairiest legs I'd ever seen. So great experience. And the website is the same as the book, feed your brain dot com and it has information about all the books, some articles, uh, you can get some free reports there. So again, feed your brain dot com. We've been focusing on the weight loss part of it, but part of the title of your book is about the brain. What's the relationship between what we eat and uh, our brain and appetite? It's interesting because that really chronicles how I got involved in the whole weight loss arena because by training, I do brain surgery in children. And I took care of a number of kids who had very sick brains uh, at Denver Children's Hospital. And I had the privilege of working with a group of rehabilitation doctors there who were exceptional. And a number of the kids, for example, a child who maybe had head trauma, needed brain surgery, had all kinds of increased pressure due to the trauma and the surgery, recovered, went up to the floor out of the ICU, and and many times uh, these kids were in the hospitals two, three, four months. And after the surgery, they needed intensive rehab, but we were always on the lookout for tools that we could use to enhance the recovery of sick brains and to make the recovery more complete, more full. And so years ago, I started working with the rehab docs trying to figure out how we can use 
nutrition as a tool in the recovery process. So we were experimenting with healthy fats, amino acids, which are really protein that you can give through a vein as an intravenous solution and using a number of nutritional supplements, vitamins, and other nutrients. And we saw an enhanced recovery profile. And so as the kids woke up and started taking food orally, we transitioned over onto a similar type diet. And then as the kids went home, they were on that diet. And the parents said, well, gee, if if Susie, my daughter's on this diet, I want to try it because I want to have a healthy brain. And after a certain amount of time, the kids would come back for follow-up and the parents would say, you know, is this a weight loss diet? Because I've lost five or ten pounds. So it really started out as a brain-healthy diet and then parents started saying they lost weight. Now, the kids grew normally, but if if you're overweight and you're on this diet, you're going to lose weight. And, and the parents said, is this a weight loss diet? So I was forced to hire a third-party clinical outcome specialist to actually study the diet. And when I did that, it was proven to have a weight loss benefit. Actually, people on the diet lost about three-quarters of a pound of fat weight per week. So that's how I kind of backed into the weight loss end of things. But really, I started by feeding people a brain-healthy diet and saw it in the kids. But you know what? It's interesting because uh, I was at an anti-aging conference in Orlando a couple of weeks ago and was talking with an anti-aging expert, and he, he recommended a similar diet to the one I was recommending from an anti-aging perspective. And I was there talking about brain health, and there are some studies that have been published recently that show that if you look at the brains of Alzheimer patients before they've developed the disease, maybe 10, 20, 30 years before, on PET scans or functional MRI scans, what you see is that in the areas where Alzheimer's going to develop 40 years down the road, that there are subtle but real decreases in certain areas of the brain in nerve cells' ability to metabolize the brain's primary fuel, which is glucose. And uh, other studies identified a relationship between this fall off in brain glucose metabolism and insulin resistance. So there's really now evidence to suggest that there's a connection between what we eat, what our insulin levels are, and how fast our brains age. And I think that uh, that's important information to get out there. So not handling glucose well or not eating well and, and having too high glucose levels in adulthood ends up with our brain not handling glucose as well when we're 70s and 80s and 90s. That's exactly true. And if that were the case, then you would expect to see people who are overweight or obese who have higher insulin levels and dysregulated glucose and insulin metabolism, and even more critically, people who are diabetic and who are uh, on medications for diabetes mm-hmm. to have a higher incidence of Alzheimer's disease, and that exactly is is what data show. If you're diabetic, your risk of developing Alzheimer's disease is four times greater, and you can have normal blood sugar levels, but if your body works harder to control them by requiring higher glucose levels, you have a doubling of the risk of 
developing Alzheimer's disease. And some of the brain researchers now are starting to describe Alzheimer's disease based upon these insights as type 3 diabetes. And they've even gone so far as to say uh, that if you can control your blood sugar and blood insulin levels effectively by eating the right diet, that about 40% of the burden of Alzheimer's disease could be prevented. And if a drug had that effect, you'd be hearing about it day after day after day. But anything that involves diet and how it can be a preventative measure in health doesn't get much media time. And there's also a lot of research coming out that exercise helps prevent dementia, and that probably is from two effects. One, uh, helping with metabolism and, and the glucose, and two, keeping people from getting overweight, which makes them higher risk for diabetes. Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think when I read the literature on weight loss and obesity, I'm not sure how great a connection there is. It's probably got some benefit, but I think exercise and brain health, and from my perspective, it is a, a tight connection. Your hormonal milieu, meaning your blood insulin level falls, you increase blood flow to the brain, you feel better, it's a great stress reducer, so the stress hormone cortisol levels fall. And the other thing that, that researchers are noting is that if you look at in the brains of animals who have been exercised, that trophins, neurotrophins, rise in, in brain cells. And what are neurotrophins? They're, they're chemicals that are able to make the brain cells resist the dents and dings of aging. So they allow brain cells to age more gracefully. And that is a, a set of factors that are direct, directly responsive to exercise. So I think exercise and brain health from an anti-aging perspective is important. The other thing is there's a gentleman named Art Kramer in Chicago who's looked at brain function and exercise, and he's found that frontal lobe function, and frontal lobe function is is really where the executive functions of the brain are, a lot of social skills, uh, the ability to run a corporation, to manage a household, to organize your day, to solve complex problems. All of those are improved by exercise. In reading, one of the things I look for is what's different from what other people are talking about. And one of the things that jumped out at me is you love coconut oil. Well, coconut oil, I think, is it, it, it's interesting for many reasons. Uh, you know, if you go back in the medical literature, there are a group of farmers who fed their cattle coconut oil, hoping to fatten them up because they get paid by the the pound, and what they found was their cattle became leaner rather than fatter, and that was uh, an eye-opener for them. And I think similar observations have been noted in human beings, and the question is why, and I don't think we know the answer, but even though the fats in coconut oil are truly saturated fats, they're shorter saturated fats than the fats that are in lard or animal fat, stored animal fat. And what does that mean? It means that the body handles them differently and it tends to partition them away from fat storage into fat burning. So if you eat coconut oil, it can really be a source of energy. It almost has a similar effect of eating sugar. You really get mentally energized. 
but the good news is that it lasts for hours because fats are metabolized a little bit more slowly than sugars are. So for hours, you can have a lot of energy, and then you don't have the sugar crash at the end. And I've heard that many times, and I've experienced it. The other thing is that these medium-chain triglycerides in coconut oil are handled in a different way, again, than long-chain saturated fat because they are turned into ketone bodies. And ketone bodies are water-soluble sources of energy that the brain can use. They get into the brain, and they're a higher-octane fuel for the brain than sugar is. And for that reason, they suppress appetite when they get into the appetite centers of the brain. So that's another reason why they'd be good for weight loss. But they can also be used as a fuel for making the thinking cells of the brain work more efficiently and effectively. So this effect is so prominent that there's actually a product called Axona, A-X-O-N-A, which is a medical food. A medical food is prescribed by a doctor like a drug is, but it's actually a food, and it is for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease, moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease, and the mechanism of action is different. It actually improves the ability of nerve cells to generate energy, so it works with all other treatments, and that alone improved cognition. So if it works in an Alzheimer brain, it's not surprising that it would work in a normal brain, and the, one of the main ingredients in Axona is one of the fats in coconut oil. So it is a high-octane fuel. So instead of drinking coffee or colas, we should have something with some coconut oil in it. I absolutely believe that, and I have coconut oil every morning. And it's interesting because you feel energized without the caffeine buzz from coffee or without the sugar buzz from toast or cereal. Now, are you drinking this or just cooking with it? or? Well, it, it looks like butter or margarine. I mean, it's got a waxy consistency at room temperature, but it's a great cooking oil. It, it has a high smoke point, so you can fry with it if you want to make, if you want to put chicken in a frying pan and you put some coconut oil in it. It's a great cooking oil. And it also imparts, even though it's all fat, it imparts a, a somewhat sweet flavor or taste, and it's got a great mouthfeel. So it's something that you can put in a shake, for example, if you want to, if you drink a smoothie for breakfast. If you have oatmeal, put a little in oatmeal. If you're having fried eggs over easy, put a little bit of coconut oil in, and it just makes the eggs like a superfood. So there are a number of ways you can use it. I'm going to try it. You know, the only word of wisdom is that even though it's in most grocery stores, many of the clerks don't know where it is, so you have to be persistent and sometimes ask two or three of the folks who work in the store to actually find out where it's hidden. Okay. Another thing that jumped out at me was lipoprotein A. I've been reading that it seems to have a strong genetic component, doesn't respond to statin medications, and you say that saturated fats help lower yes, it? Yes, I think there are some papers out there that would suggest that saturated fat intake increases that lipoprotein A falls, and that's a hard one to bring down sometimes. Now, is the coconut oil going to help with that? 
You know, that's interesting. I would say probably not, but I don't know that for a fact. And while we're on the subject, I would uh, encourage people when your doctor does a lipid panel as part of your annual checkup or whatever, ask them to include lipoprotein A in there and find out how you're doing on that, what strategies to uh, to use if you are having problems with it. Dr. Query, fascinating work and some really good ideas. Anything else you want to add? Well, I think that it's just hard to hear someone saying that we should eat a higher fat diet. And I do that with some trepidation, but uh, based upon the patients I've taken care of and the uh, effects that I've seen in my own body and the research that has been coming out, especially over the last 10 or 12 years, I think if you choose your fats properly and increase the amount of fat in the diet and at the same time decrease the refined or starchy carbohydrates, I think you'll feel better. You won't be hungry all the time. You'll lose weight. And we now know it's, it's that type of diet is good for the brain. And it also has an interesting effect on lipoproteins, which are the cholesterol particles in blood. People are focused on cholesterol levels as a risk factor for heart disease. And maybe if you have a genetic cholesterol disorder and your cholesterol is 400, yeah, that's true. But I think a more powerful risk factor is the size of your LDL or bad cholesterol particles. There's quite a bit of evidence accumulating that suggests that large LDL particles are not atherogenic, meaning they're not a risk factor for heart disease, but there's clearly a lot of information suggesting that low uh, low density lipoprotein particles that are small are bad actors and are a potent risk factor for heart disease. And a, a higher fat diet especially when combined with restricted carbohydrates and refined and starchy carbohydrates, dramatically increases the size of your LDL particles and therefore makes them less likely to cause vascular problems. So I think it's you haven't thought about nutrition and the lifestyle changes associated with it and how it can impact your health. I, I strongly encourage the listeners to do so. And the conclusions that I would reach on this is be careful about the government recommendations. And it's important to know the mechanisms, how fat is stored, why it's stored, how it's burned. And as you make changes, measure it. Not only look at the scales and how you feel, but also get periodic blood tests. And glad you mentioned the very low density lipids. Include that in the panel. And... It's so important to our health and and longevity that we need to make the extra effort to do it as an N of one uh, science experiment. Well, Dr. Bricky, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that focusing on what you eat and being active and, and getting plenty of sleep and trying to avoid unremitting stress are all things that are totally within our control and those are factors that will help us lead a long, healthy life and to have a functioning brain well into old age. <laughs> exactly. We're talking with Dr. Larry McCleary, who is a pediatric brain surgeon and acting chief of neurosurgery at Denver Children's Hospital. 
Uh, also, as he talked earlier, is medical director for the Shining Stars Foundation. The website is the same as the title of the book, Feed Your Brain, Lose Your Belly, and then at the dot com. And uh, on the website, there's information about all the books that we talked about, some free reports and articles, and I think some blogs as well. Um, Dr. McQuarrie, thank you so much. Well, it's been my pleasure. I've really enjoyed it, and thank you for allowing me to get the message out and providing a real service to your listeners. My pleasure. Commentary. Nutritional advice is a tower of Babel. There are many theories that have little research to support them. The U.S. government's food pyramid and recommendations reflect more of a political process than a scientific process. The marketplace is full of hype for products and services. The answers on what really fosters wellness and longevity will ultimately come from scientific research. The strength of Dr. McCleary's advice is that it is based in research and clinical experience. To the extent that there is any consensus among anti-aging researchers and holistic medicine practitioners, it would be a Mediterranean diet with fresh fruits and vegetables, whole grains, olive oil, fish and lean meats, or if you prefer, vegetarian protein substitutes. Dr. McCleary generally agrees with the Mediterranean diet, but would minimize grains and starches, go easy on fruits that have high glycemic indexes, and prefer coconut oil to olive oil. Dr. McCleary developed his recommendations from a perspective of what optimizes brain functioning, what helps energy levels, and what helps with weight loss. The closest researcher that I am aware of is Barry Sears, PhD, a chemist who has spent more than 30 years researching hormones, diabetes, and weight loss. Sears and McCleary agree on the importance of fish oil and that insulin is the key to weight loss. Sears advocates 30% fats, 30% protein, and 40% healthy carbs. Thus, he advocates far less fat than McCleary. He believes his zone diet can keep insulin levels stable and hormone levels in a healthy balance. Sears believes a ketogenic diet does reduce blood insulin resistance but increases insulin resistance in the liver and increases cortisol production. Cortisol causes inflammation, which McCleary eschews, and Sears sees as the common denominator of most chronic diseases, including diabetes and cardiovascular disease. You will recall that McCleary's interest in ketogenic diets came from using a ketogenic diet with children who had seizures. Sears characterizes the Atkins diet as rich in long-chain saturated fats and omega-6 fatty acids. McCleary tends to favor healthier fats than the typical Atkins diet. Sears sees two destructive mechanisms of an Atkins diet. First, that its long-chain saturated fats and omega-6 fatty acids foster inflammation. Second, that when the brain doesn't get its glucose, it produces cortisol, which in turn causes inflammation. Sears says that people lose weight on the Atkins diet for about six months, but six months later start gaining it back because of the damage from cortisol production, inflammation, and hormonal changes.
He says, when the brain doesn't get enough glucose, the cortisol it produces breaks down muscle tissue to help produce the glucose. You can hear my podcast with Dr. Sears in the Ageless Lifestyles Archives interview titled, If You're Fat, It's Not Your Fault. McCleary suggests that while the brain's main food is glucose, it also thrives on ketones. The question is whether the glucose and ketones in McCleary's diet would produce enough brain fuel to not prompt cortisol production and the damage cortisol can produce. Finally, keep in mind that high-fat diets and their increased ketone production can be harder than kidneys and need more water to excrete excess ketones. Also, be alert for any signs of hypoglycemia, that is, low blood sugar. In conclusion, among anti-aging researchers, there seems to be some shift away from low-carb diets to diets that have higher ratios of healthy fats. While the jury is still out, carefully observe how your body responds to what you eat, get periodic blood tests, and be careful. You're listening to Ageless Lifestyles on webtalkradio.net and on agelesslifestyles.com. For information on my books, Defy Aging and 52 Baby Steps to Grow Young, my anti-aging hypnosis CDs, personal coaching, and my keynote and seminar services, just go to notaging.com or drbricky.com, D-R-B-R-I-C-K-E-Y.com. I'd love to hear your comments and suggestions. Send them to radio at agelesslifestyles.com. This is your anti-aging psychologist, Dr. Michael Bricky, thanking you for joining us on our quest to live longer, healthier, and happier.